and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians 3. I want to add just a few things for you before we get into the message and text. And first of all, I want to say congratulations to Edwin Stevens down here. Edwin uh, was on the Rockingham Rage basketball team along with three other guys that he brings to youth group, uh, Jamar, B.W., and Travis, and their basketball team won the CSAA Division II state title in North Carolina yesterday, and Edwin was on the uh, all-state team there, so, and he says, to God be the glory. Amen. Also wanted to say some extra mile thanks awards kind of thing. Uh, This past Monday was our day off, but Bruce Poindexter didn't take the day off. He came up here and searched the entire 92,000, 93,000 square foot building. And at the end of that time, he did find a water leak that we needed to find. And so give a round of applause for Bruce Poindexter and doing that. And then I think of uh, Dwight Heist and Larry Spence uh, moved some mission displays from the children's area that we put up during the pandemic, and they're really neat, but we wanted more access, more people to see them, and so they're now in the annex, and so that's one of the upgrades from this past week. So thanks to Dwight and Larry for doing that and for the original work on that. And then also, uh, Bill Joyce, Ray Farlow, and team made 200 quarts of stew this past week to bless forever young and beyond. And so that's worth a round of applause. Um, and also, we celebrated Bill and uh, Bill, Bill and Martha's 50th anniversary yesterday, and I think she probably deserves an extra mile award too for 50 years with Bill there. Keep in mind, next weekend is a big weekend. We want your prayers for Disciple Now weekend. Uh, so appreciative of Alan and his youth ministry there. I heard Tyler talking, and it was like little Alan talking, you know, and so, so neat the way he's discipled so many that go out and do great things for the Lord, but that's continuing now. And uh, Discipleship Now a weekend, we'll have 17 churches and over 350 kids at three different churches because of Alan's partnership with Roger from North Maine and other churches, and just pray for that all weekend. And then we're going to top it off Sunday morning with Dr. Bill Brown, my hero, uh, being here, and hope you can come and bring a friend next week to hear Dr. Bill Brown, who's currently with the Colson Center, but has been doing biblical worldview training for 30-some-odd years now and is one of the experts in it. So glad to have him here. Also, if you've been considering baptism and would like to talk about being baptized on March 12th along with one of our young adults, uh, go ahead and uh, uh, fill out the description that's in the bulletin there and let us know about that. And then on the 25th, we, can't, uh, we just have to participate in this. Up at Highland Heights, our friends up there are going to have the International Mission Board in with some of their missionaries to talk about what they do uh, with 4,000-some missionaries around the world reaching all kinds of people and how we can partner with them in different ways. And so uh, sign up for that. Text me or Eddie, and we'll uh, include you on the van trip or two-van trip up there. Now, 
you know, all the grief that we had in January is we lost about six members and things, and we thought we were going to get through February that way. But this past week on Tuesday, uh, one of our regular tenders, Champ Anderson, and then also later that day we found out that Vicki Fuque had died. Vicki and Daniel were here this past week just in front of where the camera is. And uh, what a total shock. She's the lady that brings her golden retrievers, you know, to the nursing homes and other things. And I'll tell you what, it's just broken our hearts all week long. But we're doing that funeral today at 3 here at the church. And if you want to come back for that, we'd love to have you here to support Daniel and his sweet daughters uh, as they grieve. And uh, so you never know, do you? Not promised tomorrow. Champ was 91, but Vicki was in her late 60s. And so don't take any day for granted. Honor the Lord in it and uh, be a blessing to others. And make sure if you don't have peace with God, you have peace with God because that made all the difference this past week and will today as we do that funeral. Well, let me start this message by asking a question. Do you know who the first Baptist was who left his own country and became a missionary in another? And you may have said the great William Carey, who in 1793 went from England to India, but it wasn't him. You may have said the great Adoniram Judson, who truly was a great man of God, but he was a congregational missionary who on the boat started studying the scriptures and believed, hey, I need to believe in believer's baptism by immersion. And so he switched to being Baptist. And uh, Luther Rice came back from that trip to support him in different ways. And that was the beginning of some renewed missionary or some focused missionary efforts like was happening in England. But it wasn't him. That was 1812, 30 years before Judson and a decade before William Carey. I'm going to show you a man here, George Lyle. This is a book about him we're showing up there. This man took the gospel with him when he went from America to Jamaica. Let me tell you just a little bit about George Lyle. He was born a slave on a Virginia plantation in 1750. 23 years later, at the age of 23, he heard the gospel from a Baptist pastor, and he was saved. And he immediately took the joy he had in the Lord and started testifying and sharing. And as he read scriptures, he passed things along to those, his fellow slaves, and he saw many converted. The man who owned him was a Baptist deacon named Henry Sharp. And Sharp was so impressed by this uh, change of heart and mind. He, he, he had known George to be a tremendously hard worker, and George had earned his trust in so many different ways. And he said, George, I'm just going to give you your freedom so you can go and preach all the time. And George led many to Christ in South Carolina, wound up down in Georgia. And in Savannah, he planted the black, first black Baptist church before the Revolutionary War. And in fact, we were in Savannah this past uh, uh, summer time or fall time, and we actually uh, saw, this, you know, saw the place where we could go. If we'd gone a few more blocks, we'd have been able to see exactly where that church had been planted. Now, George was bivocational all his life. That meant he do, did other things to earn a living so that he could preach and teach as much as he could and, and that sort of thing. He did that to support his wife, Hannah, and four children. And I'm so thankful for all those bivocational pastors out there and church planners. Um, you know, uh, I, I get paid to be good and be your pastor up here. They get paid, for, they, they're good for nothing. Um, and they work so hard and then serve the Lord. But then slavery reared its ugly head again, and Henry Sharp, his former owner, died serving in the Revolutionary War as a soldier. And wouldn't you know it, Henry Sharp's descendant said, we're going to try to re-enslave old George so he can serve us longer. We think dad uh, kind of let him off easy. And so they had him arrested, and uh, fortunately he was able to produce the free papers and everything was in order and he was free again. But he said, man, I think they're just going to keep on trying. I better come up with another plan. And this wonderful man, George Loyal, Lord George Loyal, Loyal Lyle, George Lyle, 
he actually entered into an indentured servant work contract that helped him buy a, a, a bus, t- uh, not bus, boat, boat ticket and go to Jamaica with his family. And as soon as he could, down there, again, this hardworking man worked off his debt and he was free again. With his wife Hannah and others, 14 others, he started a Baptist church in Kingston. And during the first eight years, they won to Christ and baptized 500 converts. Isn't that cool? And he wrote British Baptist. He was such a humble man. He wrote British Baptist and he said, look, you've already got an organized missionary society over there. We need your help. Would you send us? Would you send us some workers? Would you send us some missionaries to help with this harvest of souls? And they did. Now, Jamaica was still dealing with slavery like America was at that time too. And sometimes to stop him preaching, George was thrown into prison, feet fastened in stock. His family was not allowed to visit. And... He was even tried for his life, but he was acquitted. Now, by 1814, there were 8,000 Baptists in Jamaica and 20,000 just after his death in 1828. And within a decade of his death, all vestiges of that evil practice of slavery also ended in Jamaica. And now you know about George Loyal. And I shared about uh, George today because as we continue on in Colossians, we're coming to Paul's instructions to bond servants and their masters. Slavery and, and ownership of slaves was a very real thing in the Roman Empire, and so many of the early converts were slaves that came to Christ. Their masters were coming to Christ too. We see a beautiful example of that in the church in Colossae with the slave Onesimus and the owner Philemon and the whole book of the Bible, Philemon, that Paul writes to Philemon asking for Onesimus' release so that he too could be like a George Loyal back in, George Lyle back in the day. And, uh, but as we look at this passage, whenever you're reading in the scriptures, there is how the first audience would have understood it, and we seek to understand and know what that is, what the text says. And then we're looking for those timeless theological truths, the, what the text means, and then we draw out of those how to apply them now in our lives. We observe what the text says, observation. We think through what it means theologically, that's interpretation, and then application, how it applies now in our lives. So we are in, we've got timeless principles from our passage for today for workers and bosses in the workplace. Colossians chapter 3, we're in verse 22, down to chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, this is the verse that he was talking about, Colossians 3.23, you should have this memorized, along with John 3.16. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. And chapter 4, verse 1 says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So today we're going to talk about Christians and their workplace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your tremendous love for us. We love you back. Thank you for the truth of your word. Guidance for life to sinners such as ourselves that are so prone to put self first and not work for your glory but our own. We thank you for how you promise that if we humble ourselves before you, you will lift us up. If we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. That if we'll provide the sinner, you'll provide the Savior. Thank you for the salvation that is had in you. And also thank you that for believers, the Holy Spirit resides inside of us now. 
and that we have this word of God and your spirit is leading us to the truths of God's word so that we'll remember them throughout the week and apply them as we worship you in word and deed. We do our everything we do heartily for you and not just for ourselves or others, God. Lord, thank you for this passage, God, and what it teaches us and how it changed the Roman Empire and how it's still changing hearts and lives today. Help us as we look at Christians in their workplace. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you're just joining in with us or visiting today, we're so glad that you're here. And um, as we've gone through Colossians, we've seen that there's a first two chapters that really uh, identify who you are in Christ. You have an all-sufficient Savior, and you have an all-sufficient salvation in Him. No need to add other things to it or subtract what's in the book and those things. And then by the time you get to chapter 3, then Paul starts giving some specific uh, words of wisdom and guidance and commands to Christians as they work together within their churches and in all areas of society to bring glory to God and bring people to Christ and to help the Christ, fellow Christians grow. And it's such a beautiful book the way it lays out. It also lays out about the same as Ephesians. That is six chapters, but the first three are about who you are in Christ, and the second three are practical commands, mostly in the context of your earthly relationships, so that you can glorify glorify Him. Now, before we look again at these specific verses, let's spend a few moments talking about the Bible on slavery. The fact that the Bible in both Testaments gives rules about slavery does not mean that God condones slavery. There are times in the Word of God where the Bible regulates what God does not condone. Another example of that is divorce. In Malachi 2.16 it says God hates divorce, but in Deuteronomy 24, he, God gave a law on divorce that protected especially vulnerable women when they were wrongfully divorced. So God was looking out for the weak and the vulnerable uh, by regulating what He didn't necessarily condone. And the, that happens with slavery. The laws on slavery in the Old Testament were nothing like the absolutely horrible practice of kidnapping people uh, that British and American slave trade relied on and then selling them and demeaning them and all that. And so we're so thankful that is no more. And yes, some Christians, including many Southern Baptists uh, back in the 1800s, were on the wrong side of those things. But Christians also led out and led the way in saying, no, no, the Bible says people have double value. They're created in God's image and likeness. And they also are the subject of Jesus' death on the cross, His concern for them, that if they turn to Him, they'll be redeemed. And so all people are potentially double valuable in God's eyes, all because they were created in His image and likeness. And then those who come to know Him personally know His redemption and know how much they are loved by Him. Now, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament laws, if you look closely on them, and I challenge you to do this, you know, sometimes just really read carefully and see how much God did to protect the vulnerable in the midst of Israel through His uh, Ten Commands and the law after that. Old Testament laws on slavery were more like time-dated work contracts, about a seven-year time frame that you were going to work for another. You knew how long it would be, and then it would be done. You could purchase your way out of the debt early. And if your master so much as chipped your tooth in discipline, you went free. That's about as low a bar as you can get. You know, that's a, you, know you play hockey, you lose teeth, you know, as I know from when I was a child. <laughs> now, this servitude did not involve trafficking because in Israel, if you kidnapped somebody, that was punishable by the death penalty. And it ought to be punishable by the death penalty in America too. You know, shouldn't kidnap somebody. But the Old Testament basically gave a way for the have-nots in the midst, the haves in the midst of Israel 
to help the have-nots or the have-fallen-on-hard-times. And so it gave a way to, uh, for people to get back on their feet within the context of the nation of Israel. By the New Testament days, Israel and the early churches, they were all under the Roman Empire. So all of your New Testament's written under Roman occupation, and Rome had some specific laws about uh, slavery. Sometimes we read things that Paul relates to about the law in the New Testament, and, and we um, think, okay, he's saying that for sure when what he's really doing is reflecting on what the Roman law was and how it is an analogy to what they're calling for, what the apostles were calling for. People became slaves one of three ways under Roman law. First, you could be captured. Rome was ha having constant military expansions. They were, uh, you know, they were overcoming and conquering all kinds of other ethnicities and nations uh, uh, you know, throughout the world. And as they would conquer them, they'd capture the people and many times bring them back to Rome and other places and put them on the slave block and, and sell them. So capture. Another way, you could be born to a slave. Your parents were slave. You're born a slave. You're still in slavery. And the third way was either by sale or self-sale. You yourself had fallen on hard times. The word often used in the New Testament is the word doulos, that means bondservant. In the context, sometimes it is a, a much more um, horrible form of slavery, a little bit like British and American uh, the slave trade. Other times it is more or less this indentured servant kind of idea that um, you, uh, you were time dated and you were going to get a chance to buy your way out. Under Roman law, slaves were legally non-personas. You did not count as a person. So think about that. You were non-personas with limited rights. Now, by the time the gospel gets spreading in the Roman Empire, the Roman law already had a path to freedom for slaves when the first churches were planted. Uh, but as the gospel spread, legislation toward freedom escalated rapidly, and I'm so glad it did, you know, because it changed things, as the Bible always changes things when it's heard, understood, and applied, and salvation in Christ always changes people when it's heard, understood, and applied. Now, many times critics looking back at the Bible today, they'll say, there should still be more in the Bible against slavery. And when I've asked a person or two, what do you mean by that? Usually they say something like this. There should be more clear statements of early church leaders on the record trying to end it. And I'll usually say something like, well, have you read the couple times that that is the case in the New Testament? And they'll go, what do you mean? I said, well, there's a whole book in the Bible that goes along with this book of Colossians, the book of Philemon where Paul basically used his influence with Philemon to have a slave released. Onesimus, right? Just like the George, Loyal, George Lyle story. I'm going to call him George Loyal forever now. And then there's Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 7. It says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. He's basically talking about being so focused on Christ uh, that he's the main thing. But then he makes this statement, and I put it all in caps for you there on, your, on the screen. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So here's the great apostle Paul, no bigger leader in the early church, saying to slaves, if you can get your freedom, do it. Pretty good, huh? But we do need to say that the early church leaders, they spent most of their time focusing on not trying to change laws, but in preaching the gospel. So hearts would be changed and be ready to change laws. And I made the statement here, you can legislate morality from the outside in, but lasting change only happens from the inside out when our hearts and minds are changed through knowing God and biblical truth. Haven't you found that to be the fact? You know, you can make your kids do all, we talked about parents and children last week, you know, you can have all kinds of rules from them, 
But what you want to get to is that heart, right? You want to get to where there's heart, love for obedience, you know, where they're not just doing what you ask, but realize, man, I'm part of a family and I'm grateful for my parents and I have a part to play within this family and, 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 uh, and this, you know, I, 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 I just like, you know, when, when it's from the heart, things change. When it's not from the heart, when it's legislated that you have to clean the cat box, you're down there with the cat box and you're going, oh, this is terrible. I got to clean the cat box. And there's all this smell and all other things like that. But when your heart's right, you just say, man, this is just another way to serve the Lord. It's another way to serve the family. And you can make things fun then, right? And that's what Paul had in mind when he talked about the, the heart and wanting that to be behind obedience and what you do for the Lord. When your heart's right, you go to that cat box and you pretend it's a treasure hunt. And guess what? You almost always find it as you go through there. You get it and you sift it and there's not gold nuggets there, but you put it in the trash. And, and, and you can live like, life like that. You really can. Everything doesn't need to be a drudgery. Lasting change happens from the inside out. When you know God, you love Him, and you want to serve Him. So in the Roman Empire, knowing Christ changed everything for how husbands and wives treated each other. We saw that two weeks ago. It changed everything related to how parents and children treated each other. And in the Roman Empire, knowing Christ changed the way servants and masters, bosses, and workers treated each other. We've already seen the gospel of Jesus Christ absolutely shattered the notion that any one person is more valuable inherently in God's eyes than another. And I'm, I'm so thankful for our founding fathers. You know, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And that didn't, doesn't mean we all can play basketball as good as Edwin or that we can all be as smart or artistic as others and things like that. It means that our souls have infinite worth before God. And we have a creator that has created us. He has a purpose and plan for our life. And, uh, you know, the Proverbs say very clearly that if you insult the poor, you are really dishonoring their maker, their creator, your God. So you don't have any, um, you should never uh, think, oh, that person's just worse than I am, less than I am, you know, etc. Let's see how it's already been said in Colossians 3, back in verse 9 and through verse 11. He says there, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, all those practices that were sinful. And verse 10, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So old self off, new self on, I'm saved now, I can get back to God's, I can recover and pursue God's design for my life and for every other aspect of my life. Verse 11, here, what, here, where's here? Here, in the body of Christ, here among the people of God, there is neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither circumcised and uncircumcised. There's not barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. We don't judge from outward appearances anymore. We look to the heart. And praise the Lord for that. So let's now relate these verses from Colossians 3. Now remember, we started out this discussion in chapter 3, verse 17, with whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And then in the sister pastor passage over in Ephesians, we saw that it said that we're to submit to one another under the fear of Christ. And so we saw that when God next goes in these passages to the, uh, the different relationships we're in. They're regulated by all of us knowing that we have a God in heaven who's, uh, who loves us and wants us to fulfill our purpose and then fulfill our role, submitted to Him and submitted to what, for husbands and wives, what this marriage is for 
uh, children and parents what this family is, and then for workers and bosses what this organization is as we go forward today. So let's relate these verses to our experience today. Four commands for Christian workers. Verse 22, do everything your boss expects even when they are not watching. So look again at verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything. The word obey there is, uh, it comes from uh, a word that would be attend to. Answer the knock at the door is one way this word comes out in its uh, word forms and things like that. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Your masters according to the flesh is the way the uh, Greek reads there. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity or with generosity of heart, fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Now what does he have in mind by eye service there? Uh, you know, sometimes you have to just stop and meditate. What does he mean by eye service in that passage? Well, there is a type of worker who works harder when the boss is watching. That's sometimes true of me at home when I've got a chore to do and Elizabeth's watching, you know, work a little bit harder. And that same person sometimes will slack off when the boss is not looking. And you know who you are out there or watching online. You know who you are. Um, Paul says Christian workers should be known for doing their best even when the boss isn't looking. Now why is that? Because even when the boss doesn't see what we're doing, God does. There is somebody who sees, right? The Lord sees what we're doing. Uh, the psalmist talked about how the eyes of the Lord go to and fro the earth, and the eyes of the Lord are searching, looking to see if there's anyone that is doing what he wants to be done. And so God is constantly watching. And so even when people don't see us, you know, a thief will look one way, and they'll look another and see nobody, and then they'll steal the thing, thinking they've gotten away with it, but not before God they haven't. There is uh, a God who sees even when they don't see God wants us to do our best because it's the right thing to do, like it's just the way we worship Him during the weekday. And Eddie said it well, but you know, uh, don't whistle while you work, worship while you work. One of the great examples from church history is a man named Brother Lawrence. He worked in a monastery, he worked in the kitchen. And uh, people would come to not see the monks and the wisdom that they had as they searched the scriptures all the time. But they'd heard about this guy that joyfully served and sang and uh, talked about God while he was doing the dishes. And people, uh, some even heads of state, got in the habit of visiting that monastery and going to see Brother Lawrence. Well, the monks were kind of jealous of that, and so they put old Brother Lawrence uh, in the uh, stables where it's a little more smelly, a little bit more hard work, and they said, we'll break him from being happy while he works and joyous while he works. And, you know, he had this great statement. He said, um, what you would normally do for yourselves, now as a Christian, do for the Lord. And it came from passages just like this. And guess what? He was just as joyful a presence to be around in the stable as he'd been in the kitchen. And people still sought him out. And isn't that true? You are lights in the world. You're salt of the earth. And when you are in your workplace, whatever it is, how hard your job is, you bring the presence of Christ with you there. And as you serve him and seek him, you make all the difference in places that frankly sometimes are very, very hard to work. It's nice to have the boss see us doing the right thing and gaining confidence in us, isn't it? That's always a good thing to get your boss saying you're doing a great job and I'm even going to give you a bonus and stuff like that. But also, if he or she can delegate work to you and know you can do it, he or she, what can they do? They can get more work of their own done or they can spend more time helping in other problem areas. And so I wonder, do you intentionally ask yourself, 
In, do, you ever, do you ever spend time meditating not just on what your job is, but on what your boss's job is? And do you ever then say, okay, this is my job, that's his or her job, and uh, how can I help my boss get the job they need to get done for their boss? Part of the unselfishness we have as Christians is trying to, again, look around and how can I add value to this place? I've got a job to do. My peers got a job to do. My boss has a job to do. People that report to me have a job to do. And how can I help all them do that job as well? John Maxwell wrote a great book called 360 Degree Leadership where he talked about these things. You know, sometimes you're the authority over people. Sometimes you're under authority. And your boss has a job to do, help them do it. Your peers have jobs to do, help them do it. Get your own job done and help those that report to you get their job done. So not by eye service, but truly uh, do everything expected even when they're not watching. That leads to the next point from verse 23. Do your best in all your work as if God was signing your paycheck. Verse 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily. The word there is the same word we get soul from. Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do your work soulfully. Do your work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. What an awesome verse, isn't it? Uh, it's good to hear well done from a boss, but what you really want is the applause of heaven. To get to heaven and him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, some of you work for a hard boss that just doesn't appreciate you. And I get that. There's some real hard, terrible places to work, you know. And, uh, and, and it's so frustrating. But isn't it good to know that you have a bigger boss in heaven that does appreciate your work? There should be an amen there. You know, sometimes the drudgery we do at our work, it's just hard. But your boss, even if they're a bad boss, isn't your ultimate boss. God is. And, uh, you know, by the way, you know, all the literature before the Bible talked about work in a, uh, people just hated work. Work is a terrible thing. I think about that great story, the Greeks had a Pandora's box, right? Pandora's box. And when Pandora, the semi-god, you know, uh, opened this box, it had all the world's uh, things inside of it, and they just started flying out. And all these illnesses and wickednesses and lusts and all these different things. And one of the things that came out was work because it's so hard and awful, you know. Um, and that's how they thought of work. Oh, it's just terrible. You say, well, Danny, doesn't the Bible uh, present work as cursed or something and uh, hard like that? Uh, well, yes, but there's so much more that the Bible says. It is true that because of Genesis 3, God told Adam that work would now be hard and frustrating. But that doesn't mean that work is bad. Uh, before that, in the Garden of Eden, God created male and female. He put them in the garden to tend it and work it. Meaningful work. Uh, and it was their delight to serve God and worship Him as they worked. They each had their role to play and did different things. It was tremendous. And I think about how the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes say you ought to be rewarded for a job well done, you know, and the different things. It, it, it provides work with new meaning. When the Reformers went through the time of the Reformation, all the great solas of the faith that we only do things for God's glory and the Bible's our only authority and you're only saved by God's grace alone through your faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. 
One of the things they also discovered was how work was a calling from the Lord, not just preaching, not just being working with the students at your church or whatever, but also in all areas of life, God gives you this calling. And as you honor him in that calling, you are contributing to the world's uh, welfare and all the different things God wants to do in the world. I love the phrase add value. You were put in your place of work to add value to the organization. And here in Colossians 3.23, we're told that you're to do that work heartily for the Lord. You're to do it with all your soul for the Lord. You're to put everything you got into it. And you know, I talk about 5G living, that we're to do everything we do for the glory of God. And then the second thing I say is you do it for the good of your fellow man. Uh, You know, people need to eat, you prepare food. People need their cars fixed, you fix them. People need houses built or renovated, you do that. Um, Kids need teaching, you teach them. So you do what you do for the good of your fellow man. You do everything you do to get the gospel to non-believers. God puts you there to be light. You do everything you do for the growth of your fellow believers, this discipleship that what you're being taught, you pass on to others who pass on to others, and you do it all with a grateful heart. But I think about this verse again, Colossians 3.23, do your work heartily for the Lord. And I couldn't help when I thought about that of thinking of that great passage in Matthew 25. You know the one. In that passage, believers who have ministered to the Lord... Um, are astonished to hear him say that, that uh, you know, you visited me when I was in prison. You gave me food to eat when I needed it. You, uh, g- you know, you gave me something to drink when I needed that. You gave me clothing when I needed clothing. And they said, now, when did we do that for Jesus? I think I'd have remembered having an encounter with Jesus here on earth. And you remember what he said? In as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. You've done it unto me. Let me borrow that phrase for work based on Colossians 3.23. When did I build you tires, Lord? On the third shift at Goodyear, you built me tires. When did I teach you math, Lord, when you taught me in the school, when you taught those students at the school? When did I wait on you, Lord, when you worked there at the restaurant? Well, golly, Lord, that didn't seem like it was you. That seemed like an uh, abrasive person that gave me a bad tip. Yeah, they gave you a bad tip, but I'm storing away some reward for you in heaven. Well, that leads to the next point. Don't just earn an earthly paycheck, but a heavenly reward. Reward, verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. In the context here, he's speaking about working not just for earthly bosses, but for the Lord. Earthly bosses can be good or bad, but the Lord's excellent and awesome always. And it says here that God will reward not just the churchy things we do for Him. He rewards those two. He rewards your prayer life. He rewards your giving. He rewards your witnessing. He rewards you using your spiritual gift for His glory. But when we add Colossians 3, 23 and 24 into the mix where it talks about reward, you get rewarded for your work as a nurse or a nurse practitioner. When we engage in 5G living in the workplace in any way, God says, I see it and I'll reward it even if you didn't get appreciation from the people you served or your boss structure. That's awesome. That's awesome, isn't it? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, every deed on this planet matters. Bible makes clear that we will give accounts for everything we've thought, said, and done. Every deed matters. 
if you never turn to Christ at the great white throne judgment, the books of the deeds will be opened and you will have that evaluation go on for absolutely everything in your life right there. For people that turn to Christ and get saved, their punishment is dealt with on the cross of Christ, and so they won't have to go to the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. Instead, the Bible seems to present a different time of evaluation for the saints, where our thoughts and words and deeds will be evaluated before Jesus. That's, that music went perfectly with it, Bill. You should have let it just roll a little bit there. Good to see you, Bill. Um, and then God will reward us for all that's done. 1 Corinthians 3 says it. Look at, at verse 10. It says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The only way anybody can go to heaven is the work that Jesus did on the cross for our souls. But after salvation, everything is being looked at for possible reward or loss of reward. Verse 12 says, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. What day? That day of judgment before Christ, that day of evaluation, the beam of seat of Christ, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. This is not hellfire. This is just using the analogy of gold put in fire, the dross is consumed, the gold is refined, you're left with a purer product. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And we've talked about this a time or two in the past, but you need to get this locked into your head, this image locked into your head, of you standing before the Lord, and of course, you're so thankful that he saved you by his grace. You're so thankful that you're getting into heaven. That is such great reward itself. But it's he himself who has said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's the apostles that say, don't lose your reward. It's the apostle Paul that wrote this passage here under the inspiration of the Spirit that speak about God wanting to reward that which is done for him. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I remember how much this passage touched Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India. And as she broke this down, and others have broken this down over years, they pictured you standing before the Lord, and every thought that you've thunk, every word that you've said, every deed that you've done, next to you in a great big pile. Some like gold, silver, precious stones, things that honor the Lord, other things that were for self and were sinful and other things. And you're standing there before the Lord, and the picture is of the fire being put to the pile next to you. And all the things that didn't matter, all the things that were for sin and self, just don't survive that fire of analysis there. And all that's left are the gold, silver, and precious stones, things that can withstand the fire. When John writes in his little book, uh, he says, see to it that you don't lose your reward. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. To not only get to heaven, but also to have done things he could honor and to rebuild your life around now that which will matter for eternity. All the fruit that is part of being a faithful and fruitful follower of Jesus Christ. Paul's talking about his own way back here again in Colossians chapter 3. 
Don't just earn an earthly paycheck, but a heavenly reward. Knowing that from the Lord, verse 24 says, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now let me say a word of thanks for the situation we have in America. Um, I'm so glad for the most part that pay is going up, that uh, compensation and things are going up. But you may have an awful job and be underpaid, and I'm so thankful that we live in a country that if that's your case, you can look for another job. You know, we're not under the old slavery system like so many of the early Christians were. We're under a system where you can say, you know what, um, I, uh, I can get a better job, and you go out and get another job, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's just part of the great system we have. But remember this passage, and if indeed you are right now looking to go to another place, finish well where you are. Be the presence of Christ there. Don't let bitterness build up. Continue to work for your heavenly boss, and God will reward you in due time. Well, the fourth thing for workers is don't be known for wrongdoing and its punishment. That's from verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, these words don't apply to all of you, but they do apply to some of you. Some of you still complain about a time you were done wrong when you were fired. And your family members and friends and others that know the situation um, hear you saying, I was fired because they didn't like me, and they know the truth. You were really fired because you didn't do the work or because you did bad work. Christians who hear this that work for somebody, let me say it. Your boss is not running a charity. They have a job to get done. They have a work product that needs to happen. And they have hired you to do work. Don't do it poorly. That's a, that's a bad reflection on your testimony as a Christian. I, I also think some super excited Christians go to their workplace and they pester their fellows around them so much about Jesus that they don't do their work well. And that's a bad testimony too. Now, it is great to witness and share at your workplace. I, I've, I've shared with a few people um, a great example of that from back up in the valley. Uh, you know, a man that was a manager over some different uh, um, stores, and he would go to the different stores, and somebody would see his joy in the Lord, and they'd say, hey, uh, tell me about, uh, you know, what you got. And he said, you really mean it? You want to know why I've got this joy and, and uh, this expression and this peace? And they said, yeah. He said, do you mean that enough for us to talk about it on your break so we're not stealing company time? Uh, well, okay, yeah, sure. And he would talk to them on the break about Jesus. So work time, work got done, and then you had this opportunity here or after work or whatever, inviting them to your home, their spouse, your spouse, and get together for something and talk like that. So don't be known for wrongdoing and its punishment. Your boss isn't running charity. Do your work heartily for the Lord, and most bosses will be glad you're there. Now, we can't leave out the Christian bosses here. So two commands uh, quickly here for Christian bosses. The first one is from chapter 4, verse 1, the first part. Treat your workers right. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Now, if today you go to work with somebody that manages people, ask them how they try to do right by their employees. I so enjoy talking to many of you about the ways that you sacrifice as uh, bosses and owners to make sure your employees are done right by. And I heard a great example of that around Christmas time. One of our great bosses here in the church um, going ahead and giving bonuses, even though there was a, some contract uncertainty. And uh, what a great thing that was for uh, his testimony. 
But it says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. So if you go to lunch with someone today that is a manager, ask them, tell me some of these principles, because they've got better ones than I can give you here. But here's a few things that are obvious. Pay them, pay your workers competitive pay and package and time off for the work they do. Uh, It's so important, you know, not only to be paid for the job you're doing, but also to get a good package around that and time off. You also... uh, Managers will want to ensure the workplace is a healthy place for them to be and that no one is being harassed in any way. If you're the owner, you can get cursing out of your workplace. You have that right to insist that your employees not use crude language around the workplace, not tell off-color jokes and those things. None of that needs to be anywhere that people gather together in. Um, And so you can do that. You've got that authority to, to do that. You want to equip them to get the job done you've given them. Sometimes you give an assignment to get done, but uh, they're frustrated because you really needed to talk to the person that's supplying them and help them get that done so they can get their work done. So you want to equip them to get the job done you've given them to do. You want to catch them doing things right and encourage them and reward them and say, that's the extra mile award. You want, when you do have to discipline them, to avoid belittling them as people. You'll notice I haven't brought much of the Ephesians sister passage in this week because really they're about the same. But Ephesians does add one thing here. It tells masters, bosses, give up threatening. Give up the kind of demeaning talk where you call your employees losers or uh, you know, just where you're constantly belittling them. And oh, so-and-so would have done a much better job. You're terrible at that. You know, That's just uh, demoralizing. I love the definition I heard of management in a college chapel. Management is developing people through work. So yes, you've got a product to sell, you've got a job to be done, but you always want to remember the different people that you are supervising and helping and you're mentoring in some level, all of them, to develop them through the work that's to be done. And uh, boy, I, I just can see God smiling when you, um, you help that person. And then, you know, if, if it's this kind of person that you are, man, when you die and your funeral comes, there will be employees talking about what a great boss you were uh, and how you helped them and developed them, not just through the work, but also as people, as they interacted with their spouse and as they interacted with their kids and as they did things in their neighborhoods and different things like that. Uh, you've got so much to share with them. Earn the right to do it and then share your faith and your love and these godly principles from the Bible with them. Treat them justly and fairly. And then the last point is to remember you're not the big boss. <laughs> you're not the biggest boss. Because look at the second part of Colossians 4.1. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Folks, here is the teaching that changed the Roman Empire. No human is ever the ultimate authority in any earthly relationship. God himself will have the final word. Jesus will always have the final word, rewarding all that was right and avenging everything that was wrong. Nobody in the grand scheme of things that's ever lived over 6,000 years is ever getting away from the final analysis that will come standing before God. That's why Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. But more specifically, Christians are told in Romans 14.12, So then each of us, will give an account of himself to God. Think about that verse for a moment. Romans 14, 12. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. 
when we look at all the Bible says that involves, it does involve every thought we've thought, every word we've said, every deed we've done. Thank God for 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He cleanses us not on the basis of us doing it right, we've done it wrong, right? He cleanses us based not on our faithfulness, but his own. Not our being just, but that he's just. And when we come to him, he forgives the sin, he deals with the guilt, and he takes us from there. Now, if you're here and not a believer, then um, you're not going to stand before Christ to be rewarded. You're going to stand before the great white throne judgment Revelation 20 talks about. And because you didn't turn from your sin and turn to Christ, uh, you will then go to the lake of fire and hell will be as bad as the awful and wicked deeds you did all the way through. Because every sin gets dealt with one or two places, one of two places, either on the cross for those who believe and let Jesus be their substitute, or at the great white throne judgment and then the lake of fire for those who reject Christ. And so in a moment I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray to receive Christ. And we'd love to hear about that today and celebrate that with you here in the church. But if you're here today and you're a Christian, remember this time of evaluation. Each of us giving account of himself to God. And when that happens, so many of the things that were wood, hay, and stubble in our lives as believers will be like Schindler, right? In the Schindler's List movie. I'm not recommending the movie, but Schindler at the end, he says, man, if I'd sold this ring, if I'd sold this car, I could have rescued a few more Jews. I could have done this. I could have done that. And instead, I pretty lived pretty selfishly and on the side helped some Jews. I could have done so much more. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And so we are going to have an invitation in a moment. And I'm inviting just every true believer here, if you want to, you can do it where you are, you can do it at home, but you can come to this, what we call the altar here. That's kind of Old Testament language. But the reason we like it is because something happened at the altar. They prayed and they transferred their sins to a substitute, and then the substitute died and was slaughtered. They got to live in newness of life walking out from there, but, the, but it was left there. The sin was left there with the sacrifice. In 1 John 1, 9, you want to leave some things with Christ. You want to get serious about your faith. You want to walk with Him. You want to make a difference the rest of your life. You want to reconsecrate yourself like they did after the time of the offering. Won't you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts, as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.